Blog Talk Radio. If I speak for your followers and I speak for your ex-followers and I speak for the curious outsiders looking in, and you remain silent in the shadows and don't let your balls drop enough to come out and say something, then I say, who do you speak for, Mr. Miscavige? Anything on earth that says, don't listen to your mom and dad, don't talk to your mom and dad, that's bad. Yeah, wrong. Absolutely believed his own bullshit. Now, does that mean he believed it from day one? I don't know. Hubbard reveals to them that he is the Antichrist. Scientology has not helped you. You have helped yourself. Yeah, I'm absolutely positive that happened because I was physically abused in Scientology. We're crossing the line into torture. Do you think there is a rape culture in Scientology? I think that there is a culture in Scientology that children are not children. So, yeah. All right, Happy New Year. Welcome back to Come Get Some Extra Scientology Edition with Part 2 of Christy Gordon. And as we see uh, the talent agency for Danny Masterson, Masterson drop them. Um, you know, it's weird. I, I have a new appreciation. I've always had an appreciation and respect for people uh, like Christy speaking out um, and so many others uh, for for reasons that I will not get into today. <laughs> so um, uh, I will be sharing a story next week uh, that I just want to make sure uh, is more ready for you guys. And uh, And we'll leave it at that for now. So where we left off, I don't have a lot of time today, so we're going to get right into this interview, uh, part two with Christy Gordon. So much great content. Uh, such a wonderful guest. I love Christy. Uh, where we left off, uh, her grandmother was sick and needed uh, medical attention that could not be had through anything past like touch assist and what Scientology offers. So she had to write a letter asking to uh, have a leave to be able to take care of these medical issues, and that's exactly where we left off and where we'll pick up. Here we go, part two with Christy Gordon. To write a request um, for them to pay for it, and then they have to put in the monthly financial planning, and they kept disapproving that. So they wouldn't pay for it, and they wouldn't give her time off to do it. And she finally took matters into her hands and said, I'm going, I don't care. And they consider that blowing, and blowing is a, is a high crime, and you can be declared a successful person, and she was, and um, to get medical care. So, and my uncle uh, became a squeaky wheel um, in his own way and ended up being declared. Um, he was defending other people, and um, so he was declared. And so we lost them because then we immediately had to disconnect from them. So, so my sister and I only had my mother, grandmother, aunt, and uncle, and now three of them were gone. Let me ask you, um, yeah. your, your grandmother... Uh, safe to say, if she didn't leave and get the proper medical care, she probably wouldn't be here. Oh, totally. Wow. And 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 it's amazing to me how prevalent that that is now. Now, now that I talk to people, how many people, even though you're you're instilled with all these stigmas about medical care, even then, 
people start falling apart and they know it and they say, I need help, I need medical care, I need to see the doctor, and they don't let them. It's it's criminal. Um, it's criminal. And, and then, of course, then they do the victim blaming. How did you pull that in? Instead of, oh, my God, let's get you some medical care, here, take some time off as much as you need. Yes, we'll pay for it. You just worked 100 hours this week. Of course we're going to pay for your medical care. They don't do any of that. They don't allow them to get treatment. They most certainly don't pay for it. They don't give them any time off, and they make them feel like they pulled it in. Or they'll sell them, you know, sell them on some Scientology service that's supposed to handle it, which, of course, what Scientology service is going to cure your cancer? Wow. Well, Ron Hubbard says it works. I mean, right. right. made a lot of claims, and people right. believe anyway, it. Anyway, yes. There's, there's no justification not. for it. There's no, there's, there's just nothing. Wow. No. Okay. Anyways, so my my so those family members were were able to inadvertently escape at that point, which is, is good for them and bad for us. You know, my sister and I know we just had a mother, which made us even more dependent on her and value her more and more you know exploitable and easier to manipulate because now we just had our mom. And you find yourself in a situation where you're amongst these people telling you. You have to be in the RPF. That you're you're total screw ups. That you're worthless. You actually went through a period of time where, um, for a short period of time, where you actually went to that place that so many ex Scientologists I've talked to have been, where you weren't sure you needed to be here. So when they told us our mother would be better off without us, that was a real low point for me. Um, so it was a 13 and 14, and I didn't. I I became hopeless at that point. I didn't see a way out. I didn't have anyone on my side, apart from my sister, who'd been with me my whole life and understood what I'd been through. But you're not allowed to talk about stuff. So even other kids that I had seen on the RPF and I'd seen suffering and struggling, you don't. You're not allowed to talk to them about it. Um, they're only terminal to the ethics officer. My only terminal was the ethics officer. I didn't get to see my mom or talk to my mom or have her tell me that that wasn't true, that she wouldn't be better off without me. And so, yeah, I, I, I was trying to, I felt like it would probably do better off if we didn't exist. And, um, you know, had, came up with a plan on, on how to end it. And luckily, that didn't last very long. That was a low, you know, couple of days um, before something happened with my sister that made me have to stand up and, and be strong for her, and that pulled me out of it. So that was thankful. I'm glad that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, is it, is it, would you say? I mean, this is just an opinion, and uh, you don't have to answer this, but do you think mm-hmm. it's safe to say a lot of people who've been through that? Um, had those feelings been through your experience type of thing? Um, now. I feel like I feel like um, everyone I talked to had that thought at one point or another. Yeah, and, and we had no idea because you're not allowed to talk about it. You're only allowed to talk about things in session or with the ethics officer. And so that keeps you so insulated and keeps everybody else dumb to what's going on around them. You're you're each suffering right next to each other, but you can't talk about it, and so you think you're the only one, and you're being told you're the only one. You're being told that you're the weak link. 
Hmm. You are the only one. It's so, I mean, it's it's so scientific the way that he created this system. Um, so in front of your face and all around you, people are going through the same thing and you don't really know it. You're so stuck in your own problem and terrified and paranoid and you can't share um, that you don't know that you're not alone. So, yeah, now I know that. Now I've talked to million kids who are like, oh, my God, you know, that's exactly what they did to me. That's exactly what was happening to me. I was there with you when it was happening, and I didn't know it was happening to you. Um, and we could have all helped each other had one of us spoken out to the other, but we would have just written each other up. We would have written knowledge reports on, on each other. At the time, yeah. For being negative or something, because that was what we were trained to do. But, um, yeah, I think there were a lot of people that, that were in that same situation. And it's, it's interesting. As I talk to people, it seems like there's been situations that have been pointed out in, in conversations where uh, people uh, in higher levels in Scientology had influenced or encouraged people, almost just flat out said, you should drop your body. You know, um, so it's just an interesting interesting dynamic there. Yeah. With the whole idea that you're coming back anyway, which is just such a weird thing. Well, totally. So, so that we haven't talked about that, and I don't know who else has. But the idea that you're only playing this role this lifetime, and you're not really my mother, and I'm not really your daughter. We're just acting out these parts this time. And so, if we don't get to spend this lifetime together, it's not a big deal. Um, maybe we will next lifetime. Whatever. Who cares? If this lifetime ends, if you die, it's not a big deal. You're going to pick up another baby's body. If you don't get to be a fireman or a ballerina, you know, Johnny, this lifetime, you'll do it next lifetime. This lifetime we need you in Scientology. There's no value put on your life other than what you can contribute. Um, and so, yes, I heard people being tormented or threatened with or told to, oh, screw it, you know, fuck it. Just go drop your body then and, and get it over with and come back when you don't when you're not gay or when you don't have these physical problems or when so you make it go right better. So, yeah, that's that's normal. Okay. You know, along the lines of all that, you, you, you had an RPFer with you guys who uh, who had been raped. And um, it's, it's this whole thing where they're telling you if you leave, if you... Uh, if you go against us, you're going to go become a prostitute. You're going to go become a drug addict. You're going to be homeless. It actually does come true, but it's not for the reasons they're suggesting. They create that environment and that possibility because uh, what this young lady went through was terrible. So when I was on the RPS the second time, so my mother made us go back at 15 and 16, and my sister refused and ran away. And I didn't want to lose my mother. She was the last family member I had. And so I stayed and I did the RPF for 12 months. And this girl was actually a dorm mate who was not on the RPF. And we were just, we shared a dorm. And she came in from a run at night in Clearwater. And she had twigs in her hair and she had abrasions all over and her clothes were all wrong. And she was trying to force her way into the bathroom to get in the shower and we were just like we were all queued up to have showers and we weren't allowed to speak to her but we did anyway what's wrong what happened what's going on what happened to you and she admitted that she had been raped 
and that she needed to wash it off immediately, and we insisted on calling security, and she insisted that we don't, and threatened us, and of course, we're RPF, she's not, she can get us in deep trouble um, for talking to her or doing anything that she doesn't approve of, so we didn't, and she said that she was about to go on her leave of absence, you, you if, if you, your staffs are up and you write a request and it gets approved, you, you at that time could be allowed to take time off as a vacation each year. She had already been approved and gone through the process. They make you have sex checks uh, where they ask you all these questions about do you, you know, intend to come back or do you have secrets from Scientology or do you hate L. Ron Hubbard each time you go and then immediately when you come back. So she would already passed all that. And so if we told security that she had been raped, she would have to then do more ethics, more confessionals and sex checks about why she pulled it in and probably wouldn't get that vacation time. So she was more afraid of telling that this happened to her than getting help with the fact that it happened to her. Um, But also in my time, not when I was on the RPS, just when I was living locally, there were two other girls that were teenagers, 15, I think they were both 15 at the time, who were unsupervised because Scientology parents don't keep track of their kids and none of us. And they were hitchhiking at night and were picked up by a non-Scientologist. And one of them was raped and one escaped. And afterwards they came to the Fort Harrison and they told um, the ethics officer and their parents and um, the Scientology, the, the authorities there in Scientology decided that it would be out public relations if they admitted that two minors were out unsupervised hitchhiking. Um, so they were not allowed to report it to the authorities. And then wow. they were assigned lower conditions and punished for pulling it in. That's more damaging. So the, yeah, oh, totally. So those are the rape rapes that I personally was aware of and saw myself, you know, as a kid when I was there. So, is this when you got put into the RPF's RPF? I didn't get, uh, I wasn't put on the RPF's RPF. I was threatened with it. Oh. But most certainly saw other people assigned to it. Um, those folks lived in the boiler room. And boiler room? They had, the boiler room was... Um, you know, subterranean of the Fort Harrison Hotel. They lived there? Um, yeah, they were made to eat and sleep in the boiler room. Wow. And it was super hot with these low-hanging pipes and huge palmetto bugs and very, very loud, just pipes banging and the boiler going constantly. Um, and they would just have, you know, I don't think he, even when I was down there and saw what, what the setup was, it was just like blankets, um, not even a bed, um, and restraints um, on the bars. So I didn't see someone in the restraints, but I saw the restraints there. So I know that they had double watch. So they their penalties were double um, our penalties. So if we were on quarter pay, they were on eighth pay. If we had to do 10 push-ups, they had to do 20. Wow. Um, they you know, would be on half rations, they would be on half sleep. Everything, every punishment was doubled for them. They had double watches. If we were on 24-hour watch, they had two people assigned to them all the time. And these people were wanted to leave. That's why they were there. 
So this is doubly worse than what you so, yeah, were doing. Double, double, if, if, right, if the RPF was bad, you know, if working, doing hard, hardcore labor with no safety equipment and two hours of sleep a night and screaming and yelling the whole time and theirs was worse. Wow, so you, you just described what you were doing on regular RPF. Right, right, that's the regular RPF. Oh, wow. That's that's normal. That's not the RPS RPF. The RPS RPF is the threat of what happens next. Oh. And from from what I saw, it was people that wanted to leave. They they were irate, maybe irrational, maybe having some psychosis. They wanted the hell out of there, and they were willing to yell and scream about it. And those were the ones that they, ended up on the RPS. And they, they they couldn't just walk out. No, God no. Not if you had threatened that you were going to tell. Uh, if you were a threat, then you were considered insane, and you could be imprisoned. And they would call, you know, do a thing where they'd say, HCO, bring order. They would yell, and everyone from any direction would tackle them, hogtie them, and haul them off. Holy, holy cow. Yeah, it's pretty scary. And But you, but you were told... They're just they're they're type three, which means psychotic, which means something has been stimulated in there. And and that may not be you know. true. They're just regular people, the sick of it, that want to get they're out. Just regular people that wanted to get the hell out of there, and they were willing to threaten, you know, or scream or yell in order to leave. And you don't get out that way. You you have to be quiet and play along and do what they say and bide your time and be patient and be put through all the paces which is what I ended up doing after 12 months in order to be able to leave. What? I can't threaten them in any way. It, what? Won't, it won't speed things up. It won't make things better. While you were in, um, you're talking about the uh, safety equipment. I have an apartment with safety equipment. You're up on scaffolding. People were falling asleep. You're one of them. Uh, mm-hmm. Falling asleep right. and falling off of high levels. Right. Two stories. Yeah, because we were... Working on the balcony, uh, uh, working on the, sorry, the ballroom mezzanine. So we had scaffolding that would take you up to the ceiling of the lower level of the ballroom, but then you had to be on the second level of scaffolding to reach up to the ceiling of the mezzanine of the ballroom. So, yeah, two stories. And eventually they started tying us on because we would fall asleep and fall off. Um... Uh, I didn't have any, you know, major injuries from that. I fell off a couple times. I fell asleep. We're doing overhead painting, detail painting of moldings with this gold leaf and gold, um, this gold paint that was like mostly solvent but also had gold in it. And you're painting over your head for eight hours at a time, um, all day long, every day, and you can't bend your neck. You're in real pain. You're falling asleep the solvent's coming back down into your eyes. We don't have goggles. Um, we reglaze the windows on the mezzanine, which so is basically the 11th floor, and you had a twin or a partner that would hold your legs because we didn't have lifelines at that time while you leaned out the window so that you could do the glazing on the outside of the window. And I, I'd fall asleep. She'd fall asleep and drop me. I'd lost my tools down to the main street several times, and of course, then you're punished because you 
lost your tools and you could have hurt somebody by dropping the stuff and so you made to do laps or push-ups. How that were not um, deaths? I don't, oh, my God. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. We did the, we re-roofed the main roof, so that's 11 stories also, or on top of the penthouse, maybe it was 12 stories. Um, and I was up there with another teenager, and we just tried to stay low. We didn't have lifelines again. We just tried to very carefully walk around and pick up these broken terracotta tiles, which were slicing our hands because we didn't have gloves, and walk them over, drop them in this huge chute that went down to the street level, and it was crazy, and we knew it was crazy, and we just, we'd make eye contact, like, let's just do this and get this over with and get off of this roof. It was pretty insane. Okay. So, your last round in RPF, you weren't even supposed to be there? You weren't even supposed to be in the RPF? I don't know. I wasn't supposed to be there. we weren't told why we were sent there, and we spent nine months going back and forth with why. In Scientology, if it's not written, it's not true. That's what LRH said. And so if you're written up or assigned something, it should be in writing. Everything should be in writing. And we couldn't get anything in writing saying why we were assigned to the RPF. What was our crime? The last time we came in, we, we were accepted on the embassy, and we didn't do well, and we left, but we, we weren't on the RPF. So we couldn't find out why. For the longest time, petitions, queries, back and forth with the local MAA who had recruited us onto the amnesty. My mother was pushing really hard to try and get me off the RPF. Um, and it just kept coming back, you know, that I was doing well, I should continue, and that my sister should enter through the RPF. And finally, after nine months, it came back that what what we had been accused of was handing out flyers for a man named Bill Frank, and we said we didn't do that. It, it, as it turned out, it was some other local kids oh, wow. who had done this thing, and he was a declared suppressive at the time. So we said, okay, then let us let me off the RPF. I, we didn't do that thing. And they said, nope, you're doing too well. But they finally said, your sister can come in through the Estates Project Force, which would have been normal, And um, but by then she'd run away. And so at that point I said, screw this. You mean to tell me that nine months of my life in this torture was based on a lie, and now that you know that it was a lie, you still won't let me come off of this thing? And I was like, that's it. Yeah. I don't want to do this thing. I'm finished. And so then I started my process of trying to route out, um, and and that took months because they don't want you to leave, um, so they'll shame you and threaten you and then love bomb you and do good cop, bad cop and intervention and anything they can to delay the process so that you change your mind. Um, it's almost like a wear down, it sounds like. Yeah, it's just it's crazy. It's just extreme brainwashing. Um, and during that time, though, I got really injured and... Um, so was taken off of doing hard labor because the chiropractor ordered me um, to do no hard labor, to not run, to not carry anything. And so I was assigned to a desk job, which is not allowed for an RPFer. But but it happened. And so then I was working in the restoration project force, and uh, and 
Scientology International Property Restorations, which was also in the garage, and they handled all the restorations, so the ballroom and the roof and the air conditioning tower and all of the hotel room renovations. And I worked down there as the mechanical pricer, and um, suddenly I'm now surrounded by non-RPFers, and I'm being heckled and shamed and sexually discriminated, and uh, it was very strange. And then yeah. um, I was being mailed, made to deal with the public, um, non-Scientology people, in order to do my job and made to negotiate with um, suppliers and contractors and things to, to get bids and contracts to do our restorations in the hotel. And then dressed up um, and made to um, flirt with and have dinners with and meet and greet with contractors in order to negotiate better pricing and um, at the same time made to do photo shoots um, sent to the beach um, in a bikini and, and pose for shots for marketing for the hotel. How and how I, unbelievably ballsy <laughs> that they got you on the RPF degraded and then they're going, hey, go tell everybody how great we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, you're, you're just, at this point, you're absolute slaves and you're doing whatever they say and you don't question anything. It, you know, less and less. Um, in the theory, you don't question anything. In Scientology, you hardly question anything. But in the RPS, you don't question anything. And I, and I was trying to leave, um, and they were making it difficult for me. And I finally decided the only way that I could escalate things so that I would be allowed to leave was to stop doing what they told me to do. And that was really risky because I could get sent to the RPS or RPS and confined. Um, but I didn't change my behavior, I still kept doing you know, my job. I just wouldn't run. I wouldn't wear the uniform, which is black or blue. Um, I started wearing jewelry and makeup. Um, I took some random roommate's things so that I could dress up out of um, uniform. And that created like a shitstorm of people writing reports on me, <laughs> which, created, which created pressure on them to handle me. And at this point, I stopped buying into you're going to become a prostitute or a criminal. Or, like, their threats stopped working on me. Somehow, suddenly, my fear went away, and I decided that I would let go of my mother. And if that was what it took for me to get out of this really abusive situation. And it's like their leverage was gone, I guess. And there was nothing they could say. But I wasn't dramatizing. I wasn't acting out or screaming or being irrational. I was just saying, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm sorry. No, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to do this. Make them not want you there. Right. So I took their power away from them yeah. somehow, unknowingly. And so the next thing I knew, um, they were escorting me out to the street. Security walks you out with the clothes on your back, basically, and um, says you're not, you're not allowed on the property anymore. If you ever want to handle this, your only terminal is the MAA or International Justice Chief or whatever. You're now a freeloader and you're a degraded being basically, and an, an enemy of, of the C organization. Not of Scientology. I wasn't declared to positive, but you're an enemy of the C organization. You're a deserter, and you've abandoned your group. Um, and, you know, I didn't even get to say goodbye to my mother. And there were, even though they recently said on Aftermath that there were arrangements made for me, there most certainly were no arrangements made for me. Those are the blatant lie. Oh, it's a total lie. 
my mother did help me later, but it was about 10 to 14 days later. But I, so I was on my own, on the street, by myself. And I don't really remember if I was 15, I'm sorry, if I was 16 or 17, because I, I didn't even know what day it was, what month it was, what year it was at that point. You're so removed from, like, music on the radio, I didn't recognize trends, I didn't recognize, I didn't, I was so lost. So I could have turned 17, but in my memory, when I do the math, I think I was still 16 um, for a month or so. But anyway, now now I'm on the streets. And what you were saying earlier about what they tell you could happen to you, well, that did happen to me. Um, There was a girl that also um, was offloaded on the day that I was, who was in the RPF with me from outer Oregon. She had money, and she was older, and I hung around with her for a few days, and we slept in the park, and we ended up, um, she got a money order from some family member of hers, and a bus ticket or plane flight home, and she bought us dinner at a local restaurant um, nice. on Fort Harrison, and we befriended a waiter there who, she told our story, and he let us sleep on his couch, and um, so we didn't have to sleep in the park anymore, and we could take baths, and um, she left, though, and I ended up um, staying on with him because I had nowhere else to go, and he ended up, you know, taking advantage of me. And so in my head, of course, I was thinking, how did I pull this in? This is what they said would happen. Oh, my God, it's already happening, you know. Um, right. So it's, it's funny how, how that happens, and it gets reinforced. Didn't one of the people um, end up in, what's it called, the... Uh Children of the Night or something? Um, that was another teenager who, we haven't talked about it, and I don't know if other kids have, but since I told you not only are you considered to not be a child, you're you know a, an ageless Satan in a small body, but, but there's this saying that age is only a consideration. And so the way that that's used is, and it comes into play with kids, is sexual relationships with children are okay. You know, I don't mean pedophilia when I say that. That's a whole other topic. But what I mean is I'm 12 and there's a 40-year-old man that wants to have a second dynamic relationship with me, which means a romantic and sexual relationship with me. And that's okay because age is just consideration. So there's all these huge age disparities in in relationships that happen in Scientology and in the Seward. People getting married, generally it's older men, but sometimes it's older women. Um, In the case of Karen Delacarrier's son, Alexander. Um, But with me, I was 13 and 14 and being approached by men in their 40s that should have that were my mother's age and um, offering me all sorts of things that I really wanted, um, you know, cars and condos and college educations and, you know, trying to dangle my Scientology bridge, which I didn't want. I never wanted auditing. Um, but things like that, clothes, vacations, jewelry. Crazy. In order, for me, in order for me to agree to have a sexual relationship with them or marry them, whichever. Um, Maria, this girl that you're talking about, did accept one of those relationships I always declined. I knew it felt wrong. 
I wasn't attracted to these older men. I didn't care if age was only a consideration. It didn't feel right to me. Anyway, she um, did get into one of these relationships with a, an older guy in his, I think he was in his 40s by then, or late 30s, and she was 14 or 15, and um, it didn't end well. And I don't think it could. How, how can a 14, 15-year-old be mentally mature enough to be in a relationship with a 40-year-old guy? Right. But she, I, they moved away. They got engaged. They moved away. He was, he's a well-known uh, VIP in Scientology and um, an actor, and they moved to Hollywood. And the next thing I knew, I kept hearing rumors that she had gone crazy, and I tried to pull strings and hear, well, what do you mean by that? And, and you know, we don't talk about negative things, so it was really unusual that this was even being discussed kind of in whispers amongst kids, but that she had ended up in something called the Children of the Night on the streets in Los Angeles um, where she lived with him, and um, which is a, basically a drug and prostitution ring for, for teenagers and mm. runaways, and um, that she'd gotten pregnant. And then, though, that Scientology had a mother with, is a big um, is a doctor from Germany and a whale and a big IAS donor, and had um, found a Scientology family that would adopt her child. And um, and then Maria was supposedly shipped back to Germany, never to be heard from again. Hmm. Um, And it was just terrifying to me. I'd never heard about anything like that happening to a kid. And it was was unbelievable and terrifying. And and I've tried and tried and tried to find her. Um, and her brother. She had an older brother that had joined the Seerig and gone to, apparently gone to Gold Base and was a musician there and died um, mm. wow. from diabetes, I think, as a Seerig member. Anyway, it's just sad outcomes. But, yeah, so that girl had this relationship with these And just to mention, on that same subject, and now that I've gotten out and talked to other kids that I grew up with that were there at the time or even in other places in Scientology schools, that thing about age is just a consideration and older men preying on young Scientology girls is so prevalent and so destructive. And it's not... Um, we had guys at the Fort Harrison that were there to do services, and so they were considered what was called an FCCI or public. They were paying public, and they were a level above um, another public person, like if you lived locally, but you weren't a paying public person. Okay. Um, they were treated better. They were treated with kid gloves and given more respect and, and privilege. And so those men would come to the Fort Harrison where us teenage girls were babysitting and working either in the sewer or at the local public just trying to keep in exchange with our families. Um, and they would wrestle with us and they would tickle us and they would squeeze us and hug us and sneak up behind us and squeeze our faces to their chest or push their groins against us or some that were more aggressive would corner us in the breezeways and um, tell us what they wanted to do to us sexually or force us to sit on their laps. It was really predatory and it was not okay and we didn't like it. We didn't want it. We tried to pull away from it and resist it but it was like a game and it was acceptable and if you complained about it you were told that it was just bull baiting, which in Scientology is kind of testing your confront. Um, 
like a game to see if you you know can you can confront things um, and of course so a, a teenage boy who I had fallen asleep in one of the rooms while babysitting and he I woke up to him taking my clothes off and touching me and I screamed and he ran away and I reported him and I was assigned lower conditions and made to write up my overts and withholds because his mother was a public OT VIP. Of course. He wasn't punished. So that type of thing happens regularly, and it's still happening. There's nothing that's changed. Even if there's no cadet org, even if there's no children born in the sea org, that belief that children are adults and that age is a consideration, and the fact that all these men or older women, whichever, have been allowed to, to have sexual relationships with teenagers is continuing. There's no reason why it wouldn't stop. So right. There's hope. And all the cover-ups of the Dean Masterson thing. Yeah. Uh, all of these, all of these sexual things that have happened, and they conceal. You're taught, and Org members even more so, that you do whatever it takes at all costs to preserve the reputation of Scientology, no matter what. No matter what. No matter whether it means concealing, lying breaking laws you do because Scientology is the only thing that's going to save mankind and so it's the greatest good um, so a childhood friend who was a Scientologist a little bit older than me somehow I don't know how heard about my situation and she just told me this recently that she asked her parents if they would pay for me to come to Los Angeles where she was living and she flew out and got me from Clearwater, flew me back, and we live at the Manor Hotel, now called CCN. And um, I, I really feel like saved my life. I think what, what, what was happening, I'm on the streets, I've got no education, no job, no family, no nothing. I've already been taken advantage of by an older guy. I have nowhere to live or be. I think bad things could have happened to me, just like they were saying could happen to me, because why wouldn't they? had no resources, no tools, and no support, and I was a kid. Um, so I really do feel like she saved my life, and um, her name is Leslie Rickard Belcher now, and I love her. Um, nice. Anyway, I went to L.A. and stayed with her, and I discovered there a ton of kids just like me had been in and out of the sewer, recycled through, uh, abandoned, and... Um, or never in the sea but just raised in Scientology and abandoned by their families because they struggled or they didn't want to do Scientology or they had, now I know, depression, mental issues, mental you know um, health issues, um, got onto drugs and just were struggling as kids and needed support and a network of support and they didn't get it. All they got was Scientology shoved down their throats. Um, and there were a ton of us. And we just kind of all banded together and um, lived, um, and rented apartments together, all you know, piled up in rooms together. Whoever had a job would buy food. Um, we all smoked um, at that point, and we had for years because most kids in Scientology smoke because you're adults in small bodies and LRH smokes. Mm-hmm. Um, and we shared cigarettes and resources and food and if we went where we didn't have jobs or we didn't have a place to live, um, we slept in the garage um, of the complex across from the, the pack-based complex. 
We slept on the roof of the complex or on the roof of the manor hotel. Um, we just tried to make ends meet, and we got by. And we none of us talked about why we were there or what had happened to us because that was taboo. Um, if you said you t- told anyone that you'd been on the RPF or you'd been offloaded or that you were a freeloader from the Sea Org or that bad things had happened to you, you would be shunned. We were taught not to talk about our trauma or, or bad things. Um, and we didn't want to lose that, that this tiny thing we had, which was this network of kids. Um, there was a ton of um, pregnancies amongst these kids. We didn't have sex education. Sex education would be delivered in public high school, and usually it was delivered by school psychologists or whatever, so my mother wouldn't let me participate. So we didn't really even know how to prevent that, and kids were sexually active, and kids were experimenting with drugs and getting addicted, and they couldn't, their families wouldn't help them. The only help they would give them is send them to Narconon, which meant Scientology. Um, so unless they were really desperate, they wouldn't reach out you know, for that. So we were basically just this homeless crowd of kids, and it was remarkable. But also, it made me feel better that I wasn't alone. Right. I wasn't alone. It wasn't just my mom that was taken down this path, or I wasn't. I felt very unimportant and of no value because that's you know if you're if you're on board with Scientology, you're extremely valuable, and that's how they recruit recruit you and manipulate you over and over again. If you're not on board, you have zero value and you're a complete loser um, and a you know degraded being and dilettante. So I was in that stage where I was. I was the bad. I was on the bad end, and so it was. It was. It was very redeeming to find some others like me that were also pieces of shit, and I liked them anyway. And we just all kind of banded together. So I went on that way for a while. Um, I finally saw my mother again in Portland during this thing called the Portland Crusade, and we were all all active Scientologists, I think all over the world, but most certainly in the U.S., were pressured to report to Portland to be a united front protesting against this court case that was happening. And we were, a bunch of us kids were pulled out of a movie theater in L.A. and told that we had to report to Portland. And, you know, I was used to being told what to do. So we went, they gave us a rental car, and we were 15, 16, and 17, the group of us, and drove all night, broke down, had to spend a night in downtown San Francisco waiting for a new car. None of our parents knew where we were. But anyway, we ended up in Portland. We got there. There was no no lodging. They had so many people come, and they didn't have enough resources. They promised us places to stay and food. Wow. Very little food. We were sleeping in the park in Portland. Um when we finally wanted, and we just spent our days working for them, cleaning up, setting up food, helping pass out flyers, walking around with protest signs, attending these rallies, um, sleeping on the floors in people's hotel rooms who did have hotel rooms, sleeping on couches in the lobbies of hotels or the park, or Delphi Academy. They set up the whole gym and had people on cots and sleeping bags everywhere in the gym, but that was full, so we didn't get to go there. And um, when we wanted to leave, we were told there was no money to get home and that we weren't approved to leave yet. So we ended up there for months doing this. Wow. And people people that had resources 
reached out to family and got rides home or got bus tickets home, but I, my mother was there, and, you know, my sister was off living with my declared aunt and uncle, so I didn't know how to reach them. So I ended up there for a couple months before I finally got back to L.A., before they finally had a bus to drive us all home. Um, so that was interesting. And then I ended up um, leaving with a couple of these kids whose parents, they had been displaced because their parents were in the sea organization and they didn't want to join. So at a certain age, they walk you out to the sidewalk and say, if you don't sign this contract, you're out. And these two girls, uh, that had happened to. What's that age? Were, what? What's that age? Um, when it happened to them, I think they were 12 and 13. Unbelievable. Um, by now. They can't get jobs. They, they, were, they have nowhere to go. No, no, you're so dependent on Scientology, so you just hang around. We would sneak into the dining rooms and, and steal leftover toast and fruit from the meals, go sleep in the garage. Um, but at this point, they were used to this because this happened to them at 12 and 13, and so they had already mooched off people, lived on couches, hung around other Scientology kids in order to stay afloat. And by the time I met them, they were... Um, 16 and 17, and we decided, someone told us about some jobs in um, New York City with a friend who had, a kid who had grown up, had moved there, and a Scientologist owned business, these balsam airplanes that you stand in the malls and you throw back and forth, <laughs> or also selling, selling Christmas trees on Christmas tree lots. There's some Scientologists that had those businesses, and so we were going to work for them, and we ended up finding a guy in the classified ads who wanted us to share driving time with him, some person we'd never met, and we um, okay. signed up to do that, and then when it was time to go, instead of having two vans that we would take turns driving, there was only one van, so we, all three of us had to ride with this guy, some weirdo that we never met, some stranger, and we were supposed to drive straight through, but he didn't feel well, so he kept stopping at motels, and so we didn't have any money, we barely had enough cigarettes to get there and had to just sleep in lawn chairs at the motels that he stopped at and until we finally got to New York City. And then once there, the jobs fell apart, the living arrangements fell apart, and they ended up staying with a, a, their non-Scientology father who lived in Queens, but there was not a spot for me. So I called an aunt and uncle who I hadn't spoken to in a really long time, my mother's brother, who lives in Texas, and they flew me to Texas. And it's a real small town, so I was able to locate them through calling information. And they have a real distinct last name, Wolfenson. So they let me stay there, and I was there for about eight months. And I turned 18, and I had a total breakdown because I felt like I just kind of... It's the first time I sat still and had a roof over my head and food and family that right. cared about me for the first time in a really long time. And I just kind of fell apart, but not in a good way like in a bad way where everything just hit me all at once, everything I'd been through on the RPF and then being homeless and, you know, being a vagabond and not having my mother or my family or my sister. <clears throat> and I had a little breakdown. And um, I think they didn't know what to do with me, and they reached out to my mother. Somehow they were able to contact my mother. And um, by then she was out of the sea organization. And, um, by the way, she left on pretty bad terms because she, as she tried to defend my situation on the RPS and what was being done to me, she was being punished for being a squeaky wheel. So she kept petitioning what was happening to me. They kept demoting her, assigning her to full-time labor. And so 
if she hadn't stopped defending me, I don't, if I hadn't left when I did, I think she would have also ended up on the RPF because she ended up on, on the deck punished for questioning what was happening to me. So I think that if I hadn't left when I did, um, she would have ultimately ended up on the RPF with me. Um, but anyways, she, my aunt and uncle um, in Texas who were never in Scientologists that I was living with found her and arranged for me to be reunited with her. Um, so she was no longer in fear and she was working for um, some local Scientologist that had a business in Anchorage, Alaska. And my sister was also included, so we were reunited and put on a Greyhound bus and sent off to Alaska. Um, so we had another opportunity to spend time with my mom, and um, that lasted a year or so. And then we all ended up back in Los Angeles. And then I ended up working with these people that um, called um, Janice and Jerry. They ended up being full-time professional um, regs, or it was called FSMing, which is called field staff member, which is where you go out and you drum up business for Scientology, either by disseminating to people that aren't in or um, selling services to people that are already in, and then you get a commission on it. So this was their full-time job, just getting commissioned. And they worked for the IAS, which is, had just been created in the last year or two, um, which was supposed to be this um, fund uh, for defending Scientology's um, legal needs. Wow. Um, and so they, there was a position, not Seward, but, but just as a public person, they wanted me to be their office manager, and so I did that for about nine months. And that was crazy. Their um, tactics of bridging money from people was insane. I've never seen anything like it. And I'm sure that it, you know, it probably does happen um, in other ways that they bridge people. But this, the, the tactics of the shaming, blaming, um, extorting, whining, dining, love bombing, threatening—it's so bizarre. <clears throat> but it worked, and they made a lot of money at that time. Um, it was new, and so the biggest contribution that you could be was a patron, but then we start doing double and triple patrons, which was $40,000 each time. Um, anyway, but that was 1987. Oh, wow. And, uh, That's a lot of money back then. What? That's a lot of money any time. That's a lot of money back then. It was a lot of money. I'd never seen that much money, and I was in charge of the money. So when they got the money, they gave it to me, <clears throat> and I had to take it to the airport. And um, I had to deposit in the bank, and then I had to withdraw it and send it to um, St. Hill each week um, and, you know, drive like a maniac to get it there. And um, we stayed up all night, and it was just a crazy nine months. But it was the most money I'd ever made in my life. They were paying me well and paying me overtime, which was great. But then the downside was that um, the guy that they used a lot um, to tag on whales, so... um, who would help um, pressure a rich and people to give their donations? Um, they like tag team them, have three and four real influential people that were influencers and um, VIPs. Um, right. Would sit in and they would just get you from every angle. So this guy, his name was Greg Hughes, recruited me back into the Sea Org. So this was my final, I think it was my fifth time. You just couldn't and, get away. Yeah, 
I know. I was almost away when I was off in Texas with my aunt and uncle who had never been in, but I right. just got drawn. I drawn back into it. Um, <clears throat> I didn't know anything else uh, other than it. And so you'll you'll find as you continue to talk to people, the is it called recidivism. You you keep coming back to this thing that you know. It's the most comfortable, even and and I think Steve Hassan has even talked about it, that people go back to cults at least four times or something like that, some crazy number. I mean, you escape from this horrible thing and you go back, just like other abusive relationships. Yeah, it's the devil. It's the devil you know. You know, um, you're so fearful of what you don't know that you stick with this horrible thing that you do know. So I ended up back in, but only for a couple days um, before I was interrupted. Um, by a crazy recruiter who had tried to recruit me while I was in Alaska when I went to an event there. And he tried this thing on me that I'd never seen before, and I guess it's called honey dipping um, or flirty fishing or in Scientology, I think they call it the best method, which is the sexual method. And they try and um, flirt with you into joining, like like offering themselves, like he said to me, we would have beautiful children yes, to join. We need to, yeah, we need, you know, you and I need to be a thing, and oh my God, and oh, look, you know, blah, blah. and he was in my face and standing close and touching me and wouldn't, you know, put his hand on my leg and leaning in, and it was like, what in the world? I'd never seen this before, but granted, when I had been recruited before, and I'd been recruited a bunch of different times, I was a kid. So no one ever tried this on me before. It was different, and I didn't fall for it, but I was shocked by it. I just said, oh, no, thank you. Thank is there you. a policy on fine. that? No, thank you. And I don't think there is a policy on it, try. but it's a, it's, a known, it's a known thing. And if you talk to folks that worked in recruiting, um, there's a guy in particular who's known for it called Gavin Potter, and the girls he recruits are called Gavin's Girls, and it's what they do. Wow. They they make you feel beautiful, special, and they do this to anyone they're recruiting. But when they're doing it to young, and, and these are they pick handsome guys and, and attractive women. You notice they put these uh, folks out on the streets to do testing, and and they pick the good-looking ones. They're not stupid. Um, they literally use a sexual method to try and con you into joining to be with them, and then you join and find out they're already married. And it's happened to so many girls, so many kids that I'm aware of, even guys. Um, and there's even a name for it. I mean, it's really disgusting. But anyways, I didn't fall for it. It is, I think yeah. I developed my, my BS meter really early, being left alone <laughs> as we were, and having to deal with predators and stuff. Sure. That I had a really good honed BS meter. And so my, you know, I was almost kind of laughing at what he was doing. It was kind of comical, and I didn't fall for it. But anyways... Now, a year later, I'm sitting on, in the course room doing my estate project for um, ETF, which is basically boot camp when you first join. And he sees me in the course room, recognizes me, grabs me physically, drags me out of the course room. The supervisor is screaming at him, what are you doing? You know, what are you doing? And he's telling her that, you know, he's senior to her and, you know, to leave him alone. He drags me all the way back to his office, yelling at me that I'm, fucking FSO property, which means that I belong to the org that he recruits for and not the org that I just re-entered as. And he knows that because 
I would be his statistic, and I would have come in through him. Oh, wow. The episode. Yeah. So, so, I, so he's telling me that I'm property of his org, and how dare I, you know, <laughs> go, go to anybody else's org, this guy, Greg Hughes, who had recruited me this time. So he locks me in his office, leaves me there, and a few hours later, in comes my boss from the IMU, not the guy that I just joined the Seward for, but the guy that I've been working for as the office manager. And in Scientology, in the Seward, there's a policy that you can be recalled to your post for up to a year if anything goes wrong. So he invokes that policy and says, I'm recalling you to post to try and keep me out of the fight now that's happening over me. And they're talking about me and calling me a coin. So apparently, Sea Org members are property and you can trade them and they call you... They call you. They call you money. Anyway, it's trafficking. But <laughs> it's crazy. So, so then though, I'm I'm recalled to post. But very quickly, this woman who was the reason that I was kept on the RPF for all those months, the person who wouldn't let me off the RPF, um, the person that had made my life a living hell, a woman by the name of Cheryl Bischoff, um, who was the COCMOCW at the time, which is commanding officer. Um, Commodore's Messenger Org of Clearwater is now acting as the COCMO PAC. And she calls me into her office and says, Ah, you're causing trouble here too. You're going to flag. And they put me on a plane and send me back to Florida to do lower conditions. And I'm just thinking, Oh my God, I'm back here again. I don't want to be here. How did how did I get here? I don't you know I don't want to do this. So I showed up for about three days and I was staying with my mom who lived there again. And I finally just walked out, and I never went back. And that was the end of my Scientology career. Ta-da! Ta-da! <laughs> it's quite a journey. It's no, quite a journey. Really, I never went back. And I now I had to deal with real life. What is real life? How am I going to get a job? How am I going to have a place to stay? Are they going to come after me? I thought. I thought, I didn't know if I was considered blown making me a suppressive person. Didn't know if I would be able to have my friendships with any of the kids I'd grown up with. But I decided it didn't matter. And I was able to get a job. Um, and pretty soon after I, I moved out, uh, I was living with my sister who was back there at the time, still babysitting for Scientology people. My mom was still babysitting for Scientology people. And um, I started dating a guy. We got an apartment. I went off and started my life, this crazy, strange, scary, but exciting life that didn't have anything to do with Scientology. And before I knew it, my mother sent me a disconnection letter, um, basically saying that, you know, it's been great being your mom this lifetime. Um, I hope you find your way. And, you know, if you ever want to reach, um, if you ever, ever want to be in calm with me, you know, you know that you should report to the ethics officer and um, get back into Scientology and get back on purpose, basically. You know, and she signed it with a smiley face that she always signed all her letters with. And, and I, I was upset about it because I had never seen her write that I wasn't more important than Scientology before in writing. I hadn't mm. seen that in my, in my face. And she included a copy of Keeping Scientology Working. Um, wow. But I... I but I, but I was, I was feeling selfish, I guess. That I wanted my life, and I was going to put myself first at this point, and that was that was new for me. Um, sometimes you have to be selfish. Gone. Sometimes you have to be. 
Yeah, but it was it was strange. That was a strange choice to make to go. No, I'm going to put myself ahead of the group or Scientology or, right. mother or this relationship with my mother or whatever. I'm going to do my own thing, and I'm going to see where this takes me. Even if everyone is a criminal and a prostitute and a drug addict and a psychiatrist, I'm going to see how this goes because I've met some people that are nice. They seem to be nicer than all these other people. These people seem to be insane. These people that I, you know, have been being directed by my whole life, they really all seem crazy. So maybe, maybe, maybe there's some, maybe there's something wrong here. Maybe I do need to try out the outside world and see what's really there. And what I found was people that were good and cared about me more than anyone I'd ever known. So that was strange. But everything was going along fine, and I was struggling along with no education and had to do a false resume and pretend I'd gone to school and pretend I had work history. And that was frightening enough, but um, I was doing okay. Um, And my mother, you know, I hadn't seen her in, I don't know, nine months, nine, ten months, something like that. And a salesperson at the, the gap where I worked at the mall said there was somebody there to see me, and I walked up, and there was this person I didn't recognize, and it was my mother, and she was homeless and disheveled and shoeless and confused, and I had never seen her like this. I didn't know what to make of it. I was alarmed, um, thought if I could just take her home and get her some sleep and some food and some clothes and a bath, maybe everything would be okay. I had no experience with mental illness. Um, I was really pretty terrified. But um, pretty quickly I realized I couldn't, I couldn't fix whatever was wrong. And she just kept ranting about Scientology and kept taking her clothes off and... Um, I had to call my family, who was declared, who I didn't wasn't in contact with, and ask for help. My grandmother, I don't know what to do. I don't know what's wrong with mom. Can you please come? And my aunt and my uncle, and they came, and um, my mom ran away. She um, climbed out the window. Um, she, she jumped out of the car while we were driving uh, into traffic. It was really, really scary. And we, having spent so many years in Scientology has such stigma about um, psychiatric care. We were terrified and we didn't know what to do, but we camped out with her and blocked the doors and tried to care for her for probably a week before my aunt went um, to the local hospital and spoke to them about what what could be done, and they said we'd have to um, Baker Act her and that she needed psychiatric care, and we each would have to... um, write affidavits of what we saw and um, show them that she was um, a risk to herself and others and which she definitely was. And that Was, was, she, was she trying to hurt herself too. on purpose? Or do you think she was just out of it? She was walking into traffic. She was jumping out of moving vehicles. She was unclothed in public regularly. Um, she was out after dark in, you know, very bad areas of town. So I don't know that she was saying, I want to harm myself, but she was putting herself in, in real harm's way repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And cars slamming on brakes, getting an accident, stopping. So she was risking others in the yeah. psychosis that she was in. Um, at this point, she wasn't suicidal, I don't believe. 
that's not, I just thought she was completely out of it and putting herself in harm's way. So we did all sign these affidavits, and they did, they correct her, and it was a scene. And um, then they medicated her. She resisted. They had to do it by IV. They over-medicated her. She passed out, got a concussion. It was really traumatic and dramatic, and she was drooling and incoherent and angry with us um, and wouldn't speak to us or visit with us for a long time. And we, we, we knew we'd saved her life, but we also knew that we'd ended her Scientology career. And that was, this got to be the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. And I think my aunt feels the same way. We were just talking about it. Well, that, was, that was her so life, hard. right? That was so hard to make that choice for her. But we know it saved her life. She wouldn't be here otherwise. Um, and anyway, so that, so that was life-altering for all of us. But she was the last straw in Scientology, and then we were all completely out, and so that was a good thing, and we were all reunited after having seven years of disconnection, um, because when my aunt and uncle were declared that had broken our family apart. So the plus side was we were all back together again. The downside was my mother was never the same again, and um, she just ended up being in and out of mental um, hospitals and crisis care, And um, but we rallied and we tried to care for her, but she would... She did become suicidal and um, tried to end the cycle, is what they call it in Scientology, and she would call it that because she still was, in her mind, she was stuck in Scientology, um, trying to end cycle and go be with Ron and go help Ron. Um, And I know that she felt that she had failed in Scientology this lifetime, and now that she had had psychiatric care, she was disqualified for any future services. So what would be the point of going on with this life, you know? And that's heartbreaking that she's yeah. not there and that they create this stigma that makes you feel like now you should just be dead. And that is what they did. But also that she refused to allow herself therapeutic care at every turn. Like, this didn't have to happen. So, for, so, for so long, because of the stigma from Scientology, none of it had to happen. Number one, and I, I don't understand this, she, she, she shouldn't have been allowed to to enter Scientology in the beginning, she already had psychosis. They shouldn't have accepted her. If you read their 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 policies and procedures, they don't allow mentally ill people in. So why she was ever allowed in, I don't know. It wasn't that she just had, you know, postpartum that was temporary and something a one-off. She literally was hearing voices and seeing things. So so none of it should have happened. Anyway, it did. Was there maybe a rambunctious it, person who thought, oh, I can bring her in, audit her, and make her better? Do you think there was uh, some of that? Perhaps, because it's a bunch of, it is really is a bunch of do-gooders. But what we think the common thread is, is that they, they, they allowed her to receive Scientology services until she finally ran out of money. Right, money trumps everything, she, right? As long as she could pay, they would continue... She had 72 folders. They're called pre-killer folders, and they're the things that the auditor writes while you're in session. That's a lot of folders to have when you're, you know, just up to Dianetics. She had 72 folders. That's crazy. That's a, sh- that's a shit ton of auditing. She tried so hard to get the goodie out of, you know, what they were promising her. They spent all of all of her inheritance. When my grandfather died, he left money to all of his children and immediately 
Scientology reg them for their bridges and pressure them to loan the rest of their money to other local Scientologists hmm. for their bridges at really, really high pressure. Even You're not getting that back, are you? So my grandmother had the hardest time trying to recollect on these loans. I remember thinking, everyone owed us money. Everyone. Everyone we talked to was giving her some small payment, but these people didn't have it to begin with. Right. And Scientology, the org didn't care. They just needed the stat. They needed the money on account. They needed these people to pay for their bridges. They didn't care if they did their bridge. Loan these people the money. It was up to her to get it back, and she wasn't able to for the most part. Some people did give her small payments, but they couldn't, you know, they were going to pay her back or eat. Right. Pay her back or fix her car. I mean, every, all of us were living hand-to-mouth in Scientology at that point. And that's by design. That's what they do. They teach you that nothing, barely eating, but, you know, keep a roof over your head, even if you have to live communally. Who cares? Sleep on the floor. You don't need masks. You don't need a nice car. Your kids don't need to go to college. They don't really even need to go to school, right. as long as all your money is coming here. But if a, you don't have any money, join staff, and you'll get your services for free. It's amazing that there's a, that the IRS isn't on that, because that, that's definitely a business, that's a business model. Um, totally. People it's try totally. to sell you a car that you can't afford. People try to sell you a home. Well, can't you borrow money from a family member? That That is like big-time sales techniques. That's not a religious thing or a charitable thing. <laughs> their, that, uh, you know. their Bible is, yeah, called Big League Sales. It's a book. That's it actually exists. Is taught. Yeah, Big League Sales. And um, part of it is when you sign up for new courses or when you're you're new and being indoctrinated, they get you to list all your friends and all your family and their contact information. And then every time you're being regged for a new service, they pull that list of people out. And they help Oh, we you. know you have these people. Yeah. They help you contact those people uh, to get money from them. It's it's totally a business. It's totally a business. It's twisted. Yeah. It's twisted. Um, one thing I'll say about your mom is she came back to you even before she left Scientology. You know, in, even in her mental state, she she did come back. Which is something. Yeah, she, she, like I said, she always had a good heart. She just, she was trying to make Scientology work for her and trying to follow it to the letter if that's what it took. And but her heart, she always loved us. She just tried to follow what he was teaching. And if that meant we had to be treated like adults, if that meant that we had to pay for our own food when we were my God, we had to start paying for our own food with babysitting money when we were 13 and 14. It never stopped. Hmm. And if we didn't have enough money, there was a padlock on the fridge. Really? So, yeah, padlock on the fridge. Um, and, of course, we, we, weren't, we had to buy our own clothes. We had to buy our own food. We had to contribute to the rent. So we worked full-time, you know, babysitting full-time. If we were not in school, we were babysitting. Or we were washing windows of neighbors' houses. Or at Christmas, we sold, we climbed up in the trees and got mistletoe and packaged it up and sold it on street corners. I mean, we did everything we could to make money all the time wow. so that we could stay in exchange with our mother. And we talked about um, this um, before the interview, about, about how the mental illness side of things, where 
there was already something going on. If if Scientology forces the issue with the whole introspection rundowns and the auditing, trying to make it better and deny it's an illness, it's it's yeah. probably the worst thing possible. It, it, it goes along with also the diabetes and the cancer, and they're 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 preventing people from getting the care they need to not die, to not go crazy, to not have these issues. They, things could have been so much different for so many families. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the, the, you, you pulled it in, you're responsible for your illness, the stigma about medical care and psychiatric care. Um, I don't, how do you how do you work around that? How do you survive that? How do you recover from that? I don't I don't know. Um, besides stuffing everything and like us kids mostly, I I can speak for the kids because I was surrounded by them and now I engage with them so much. There was so much just chronic depression and anxiety and um, and you could see it in, in their behaviors, but instead it was being called out ethics. It was being called misemotion. It was being blamed on past life things. I mean, it's just bizarre. Uh, and it's so inhumane. Uh, I want to say it's also kind of twofold, this argument for me when, when we do these, these conversations for me and this, this exposure, is not only do you as, as a second generation and other second generations that grew up in it without a choice, um, not only do you um, deserve to be heard and have your stories known and have it happen to you known, it's so important for the kids in today that we don't know what's happening to them. We still know that there's still people in there that did these things then that are there today. So... So the people that did harm to kids back when I was there are still there and protected. And the kids that were put through that abuse that never got out have been turned into abusers themselves. Mm. Um, And so that cycle is continuing. But, yeah, because they're still allowing children at ages 12 or whatever to join and be emancipated from their parents and, and become seared members, not to mention all the public kids. But like you said, and I agree with, if your parents are devout or you only have one parent who's devout or you don't have money and your parents are trying to, you know, follow Scientology, it's a, it's a hell. It's a hellish childhood. Those kids are still out there. It's still happening to them. Nothing's being done about it. There's no protection for them whatsoever. Nothing. Scientology hasn't been held accountable, and so why would they change their behavior? The only thing they've changed is that they don't allow kids in the CR before 12, or they don't allow babies to be born. So they've tried to eliminate the responsibility or the cost of or the inconvenience of young kids. Right. Other than that, it's just the same. It's still still a mill for child abuse. Really. Well, you know, they say the RPF is gone. No one knows the truth about, you know, how how far gone it is, or where the uh, hole is is at anymore, or if uh, you know to close ranches. But that doesn't mean there's not other ways they're doing these things now that just aren't on the radar. They're doing it under the radar. I promise you that there's no way that they could eliminate that that punishment mindset without completely altering Scientology. 
That's like Christian saying, forget Genesis. They can't do it. <laughs> it didn't happen. They, yeah, they can't do it. So they just squirreled it away some other way. Or, you know, put a temporary hold on it or something and it'll be back. Because you can't keep these people in check the way that they have without using these tools that they've had this whole time. I mean, I hope they do. Honestly, I was thinking about this recently. If only they really were good and kind and charitable. How much good, yeah. So many people would be there doing good and wouldn't have wasted their lives and their money and their you know, been estranged from their whole families and been ruined. If only they didn't have to charge everyone or extort everyone. If they just let people do the right thing, if they didn't make people disconnect, if they if they just did it in a compassionate way, it would be good. Although yeah. in my opinion, all of the you know, most of the philosophy is bullshit anyway. So how do you make something that's a lie work? Well you do it by coercion and that is what they've done when you were on the aftermath Lily I asked you about your mom and I know there's um, not every visit with your mom goes well I know she's uh, she's been mad at you for at the family for um, taking her out of Scientology she's also been mad at Scientology but I think you, you I think people like to know how things are going today because I think there might be some, some something to say about that now So, you know, it's been up and down with her. Like I said, she was really suicidal for a long time, and and we spent our time with her just doing interventions, and and by that I mean statewide manhunts and things of that nature that were really dramatic and traumatic for all of us. But um, over time, she still has the same symptoms, but they've um, gotten milder, I would say. She's not... um, She's not rational for the most part, and she hears voices and talks to voices, but most recently we visited her, and um, it was really wonderful. We were able to have a lot of good time with her and talk about things that she normally won't let us speak about. That's good um, to know. She's still, still very fixated on Scientology and Ellen Hubbard being good and helping people and auditing being good, and so we just stay away from those topics usually because they trigger her if we're at all negative. Um, But this recent visit, we actually had some fun and were able to laugh about parts of our childhood and things that happened to us and just be light and and, and funny about them, and that was really good. And it's probably the best visit that I've had in a really, really long time. That's that's good to hear. That's good. good. I'm glad glad you were able to have that experience. Go ahead. But But I was going to say that anyone out there that has any symptoms of mental illness related to their experience or during their time in in Scientology, there are treatments for that. And had we known sooner, we could have gotten these treatments for our mother and they may have helped her. Now we're told that she's too far gone. Um, Mm -hmm. But trauma therapy, um, therapy from... um, from folks that are familiar with, with cult recovery, um, there are things that can be done that can make a difference, that can bring them back from the brink of these things and be really therapeutic. And I wish that we'd known that we didn't, but I sure hope that folks, um, you know, get in touch with me and I'm happy to connect them. That's uh, awesome. Mania is another person that's very connected. Um, there are some treatments that are, that are very good that can help. 
Good to know. I yeah, definitely, I definitely, based on the conversations I had with other ex-Scientologists, especially second gens and people who uh, had uh, ex- extra trauma, uh, if you can say that, but um, that, that it's best to to have a, a specialist in the field of, you know, um, cult trauma and, and that kind of uh, that kind of influence. Totally. I, I just found out recently. I mean, most of the kids that I engage with now have been diagnosed with complex PTSD. And someone just shared with me recently that there's actually a category of PTSD for abandonment for mm. children. That that is its own category. And that just blew my mind. And it makes so much sense. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up here, I think. Is there anything else that we didn't cover? Did I miss something? I think I think we're pretty thorough. I don't think so. I think you covered so much. I um, You covered it. I oh, <laughs> I you know, would love to say that um, parts of my process, I guess, in getting to this point, um, I, for some reason, knew that I wanted to seek out other kids and when I had been out about 10 years. I felt like there was a part of my puzzle that was missing, and I needed that connection, and I thought maybe if I felt that way, they could they felt that way too somehow. So I started tracking down kind of in a stalkerish way, <laughs> all these kids I'd thrown up with. Oh, for good reason. I just thought, I, well, I, I thought it was good. I, um, but anyway, I started collecting these kids and reuniting them, and we had real issues with ins and outs. So if you were out and you were critical, it didn't work. And so um, I had to straddle this line of, of that, the Scientology status um, issues for a while, and I did that for some time. But re- reconnecting all these kids, I found so many in such awful, awful and so much um, common threads that I never realized the extent of the abuse and the patterns of abuse until I had them all together and we were all talking. It's it's remarkable. It's um, it's it's been so therapeutic to um, to reunite these kids and any kids that are out there that feel alone or ashamed or like they were responsible for what happened to them. It's not true. We're here. You're not responsible. It was wrong. Reach out to me. We'll connect you. Um, there's a, a thriving community of of kids that are working together together to get better and to kind of put the pieces of their lives back together. Um, so that's important to me to share. But also, the people that came before me that have been doing this for some time that inspired me to finally say, I have to say something. Um, of course, now, recently, Mike and Lee and Aftermath. But even prior to that, some kids, um, um, Astra, Jenna, the, one of the first books I read that blew my mind was Blown for Good by Mark Headley because I had friends that went there to Hemet. I had a friend that told me a story similar to what he shared, and I didn't believe her. Mm-hmm. That, she, that she had been imprisoned and forced to abort and walked away and interrogated for months and made to divorce her husband. And I thought, I could tell she was terrified, but I couldn't believe it. It was just too outlandish. And this was in the, this was 2002. Um, yeah. So I realized this abuse has been happening all along. Always worse than you so thought. People, it, yeah, it really is. Um, going clear was amazing. Um even inside Scientology, Janet Reitman 
all of these things were just pieces of the puzzle that helped push me, you know, to the edge um, and helped me understand that I, I didn't, I couldn't accept that it was a cult. I just thought it was an icky group that I didn't, that I was ashamed of, you know? Right. I didn't realize that it was literally a man and child-eating monster. But the more I listened to Nora Beth Crest, Melissa Belasco Paris, Marisa Sigmund, Derek Bach, these stories that you haven't really heard much of, they need to be heard. We're, we've just been working on um, a few of us creating a website and a portal just for kids um, to give them a place to connect and have a voice and share their story, um, listen to stories, not just high-profile stories, but every story, and also create awareness, share support. So stay tuned for that. That's coming. It's called Children of Scientology. The the website you're building, right? Yeah, it's a forum and website, so it'll be a place for them to reconnect. Now, leading leading up to that point, is there uh, any way anyone can get in touch with you now if they wanted to, or or should they just keep an eye out for the website? Um, So they can reach out to me directly on Facebook or on Twitter, um, and I can add them to our groups. Once the website is live, it will be completely public, although there will be a private forum. Um, Our our second-time community is private at the moment because we want to avoid people that don't belong there joining us right. and, and give everyone you know, the privacy they need to discuss personal things. Um, but they can certainly reach out to me. I'd love it. I would love it. That's the whole reason that we're sharing our stories. Excellent. Now I'll add your I'll add your Twitter uh, ID on the uh, on the link to yeah, the site. So it's, it's to just the... my name, Christy Gordon, on Twitter, um, and then same thing, Facebook, Christy Gordon. Awesome. So awesome. if we can bring kids out of the shadows, the whole reason we're doing it. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, at this point in the show, I usually close up with ten questions. Uh, I think you're familiar with that. This could be silly. Sometimes there's deeper questions you can pass if you want. So, you ready? Yes, and I'm pacing, so I'm out of breath because I got excited with this conversation. So I'm going to sit down and catch my Ah, it's an exciting conversation. There you go. (laughs) So I'm going to label the interview. Join us in a pace-worthy, exciting conversation. All right. (laughs) Ten questions with Christy Gordon. Uh, Number one, cake or ice cream? Ice cream. I think that's what most people might say. Ice cream, I like it. Number two, true or false? Danny Masterson belongs in jail, allegedly, but he did it. I feel like it needs to be investigated. I think everybody's innocent until proven guilty, but I think there's a lot of smoke there. A lot of smoke. A lot of smoke. I I, I appreciate your answer. It's it's the best answer probably given true or false. Uh, <laughs> is that what you, if you can say about it, right? I mean, it is what it is. It deserves to be investigated. It does. It does, and it does not deserve to be ignored uh, for sure and dismissed. No. Number three, right. finish this statement. If I could do anything today, it would be... I think the last time you asked me this, you asked me if I could do anything differently. <laughs> so I had that answer prepared. If I could do anything, 
I don't remember oh, that. Gosh, I would just, uh, if I could do anything, I would shut down Scientology, and I would take all of their funds to help their victims. That's a beautiful answer. That's what I would do. That's all right. Number four, when watching television and movies, drama or comedy? Comedy. Comedy. I like a good dramedy. <laughs> Comedy's good. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Number five, if Scientology, I forgot to ask you this question. If Scientology was an amusement park ride, what would you call it? Oh, my God. I have so many answers for that. <laughs> <laughs> I had a trip to hell. I don't know. Trip to hell. I might be what you said. Yeah, trip to hell. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking the interpolator would be a, cool, a, a badass name for it, right? Yeah. That's so many <laughs> One that shakes you up real good. All right. <laughs> Number six. The Destroyer, yeah. The Destroyer, yep, yep. Yeah. Number six, cigarettes, yes or no? I know you smoked a lot in the younger years. Oh, so I smoked from 13 to 30. Um, yeah, no cigarettes. I only smoke cigarettes now in my nightmares. I'm so glad to be done with that. Good, all right, good for you. Good for you. It's always an accomplishment when someone quits smoking, I feel. Uh, number seven, especially when you when that's all you've known. Uh, number okay. seven, true or false? Whoever figured out ex- extreme couponing must have been in the Sea Org. <laughs> oh my God! If only they were let out to go shopping. I just saw something someone posted, and they had like a, I guess like a shuttle bus, and they took everybody to Target or yeah, like, I saw that Walmart or something like. So I guess they do get to get out and go shopping. But yeah, they sure need some coupons. So probably was like Scientologists created. Yeah. All right. Number eight. Except, on the flip side, my mother was told that at a certain point, when she was doing the RT level, so not when we were really younger, but when we were nine and ten, that she couldn't accept food stamps and Medi-Cal anymore because um, it was out of exchange. Sure. And so now we had no food. So we were much worse off when she decided to follow that thought process. And I guess she couldn't get her OT levels if she didn't um, pass this eligibility. Uh, she couldn't pass the eligibility if, if she was out exchange or downstat. So, interesting. So much crap. All right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, number eight, what's the bravest thing you've done since getting out of Scientology that doesn't include aftermath? Hmm. Uh, one of the scariest things I did, I don't know if it's a reason, one of the scariest things I did was go back to Clearwater for um, Paulette Cooper's, you know, Tony Ortega's book um, that he wrote. Okay. It was lovely. And we flew back to Clearwater and went to his book signing and, you know, talk that was held at the Clearwater Library where it hadn't been since I was 14. Oh, wow. And I was terrified. I was terrified. I just knew that Osa was everywhere and you know, I, it was it was really uncomfortable. That felt really brave to me. I'm I'm pretty sure. <laughs> stupid. I'm pretty sure doing anything you're afraid of it constitutes being brave. Uh, but, uh, but but aftermath. Sorry, you said not aftermath. That was that's just the, the biggest. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Anyway, uh, hopefully my bravest thing is yet to come. I like that. All right. Good deal. Yeah. Number number nine, Clearwater as a town. What's your general thoughts on Clearwater in general? 
You know, it's a sweet little boring town. <laughs> that Scientology was just totally ruined. Yeah. Um, it's sad, okay. and I hope that that changes. Those people who, you know, are natives there deserve to have their town back. They do. Or, or, or Scientology should change and become an actually, you know, supporting, contributing, beneficial part of it. Whichever. You can never, you can never trust that, though, could you? I mean. No, I know. It's like I, saying, I you know, Satan, this should be kinder. Exactly. <laughs> you know? exactly. You're exactly right. I'm just trying to be optimistic. I, I appreciate the optimism. Um, number 10 is just open and Is there anything else you want to say in closing? Uh, well, oh, I didn't I didn't add when I was talking earlier about the things I'm thankful for that kind of spur along me being in this place now, and that's um, all, all of the prior whistleblowers, of course, all my fellow aftermathers, but, but even more than that, you folks that owe us nothing, nothing, that are here side by side with us fighting this battle, it's really remarkable. I don't understand it. <laughs> I appreciate it. I don't know how to explain, to articulate how it feels to to finally have someone believe us and defend us and support us that doesn't have to. It's so selfless and incredible. Um, so thank you so much and, and people like you. I don't know who's like you, but I, I've been <laughs> amazed by the outpouring of support and even people willing to use their real names and say, I will help you, I will drive you, I will, you know, it's remarkable that the, the fearlessness that I'm seeing and what it's inspiring in others, it's so empowering and it's so cathartic. I, I'm so happy to be at this stage of this fight now and I have really... Um, amazing hope for people that are still trapped in. I think that good things are coming, or the end of bad things could be coming anyway. So thank you so much. That's my final uh, thing. Appreciate thank that. Thank you. <laughs> That's so awesome. Um, I am really grateful for you coming on here and talking. I know you didn't have to. I know it took some time. And um, I can't imagine, as I said to everybody, I can't imagine there's anything easy about this. So I, uh, thank you so much, and I'm sure the people listening are grateful for your time and for you telling your story. Thank you so much. And please edit out anything stupid I said, okay? I'll edit out everything that doesn't say that, you know, how awesome <laughs> I am. <laughs> exactly. Take all that stuff. All right. Thank you, Chris, so much. I really appreciate it. No problem. Take care. Okay. You too. All right, so in total, I think that was a great interview with uh, Christy Gordon. I think Christy's a, a, an awesome person to talk to and has a lot to offer. Obviously, she has a lot to offer, and it was all uh, all very important and, and, and intriguing information that uh, we all need to hear. Uh, something that comes up very often and came up twice in this conversation in different aspects of the story was, of course, the suicide thing, and I've posted on the link. I'll post the link inside the description uh, for the suicide hotline if you even know someone who's even close to it or even considering uh, call the number. Also, I put something there from Rain, the National Sexual Assault Hotline, that is available in the description as a link as well. And um, I'm becoming more and more aware over the last week of a young lady uh, named Sandrine, who's been, um, I guess she's a, a second generation Scientologist. Who's been stuck living um, with her mom? And her mom is a uh, is a high level OT Scientologist, and she uh, has been basically 
living off of Sandrine. I, I don't believe it's Sandrine's home. I think it's her mom's home. I'm not sure. But she's like 26 years old, stuck with her mom. Very emotional and abusive relationship. Uh, uh, all her money, all her efforts, everything goes to supporting her mom's Scientology. And it's not something that she wants. She wants her own independence. And the only way to really get it right now uh, is through some, you know, anyone that can help donate. So I've added the link to her GoFundMe. Basically, she's just trying to get her independence get free, and she doesn't have the the ability to do that right now. And uh, I have checked. There have been multiple people uh, from the Aftermath program and also in the Scientology community who have vouched for this young lady's story. So if you can help her, again, I have added that link at the bottom of the description. Um, let's help somebody uh, <laughs> get free. And so, you know, you heard, um, you may have heard on Aftermath, uh, Mark and Claire Headley talk about there's programs and things being put into motion to help people getting out. Uh, it is still a bit of a struggle, and that there's not like a, a formulated, uh, um, you know, ready way to advertise that and get that out there yet. Uh, so in the meantime, uh, if you can uh, help, help. Otherwise, next week I've got. Uh, I've got Samantha Hicks, ex-Narconon staffer, uh, very familiar with the um, the the cover groups, and very familiar with uh, with the Wise Corporations and, and that side of Scientology. And she'll give us a lot of information on her three years of doing that. Uh, that's next Friday, right here on Come Get Some Extra. Uh, for now, stay connected, and uh, see you next week. That about sums it up. If I speak for your followers and I speak for your ex-followers and I speak for the curious outsiders looking in, and you remain silent in the shadows and don't let your balls drop enough to come out and say something, then I say, who do you speak for, Mr. Miscavige? Anything on earth that says, don't listen to your mom and dad, don't talk to your mom and dad, that's bad. They're wrong. Absolutely believe his own bullshit. Now... Does that mean he believed it from day one? I don't know. Hubbard reveals to them that he is the Antichrist. Scientology has not helped you. You have helped yourself. Yes, I'm absolutely positive that happened because I was physically abused in Scientology. We're crossing the line into torture. Do you think there is a rape culture in Scientology? I think that there is a culture in Scientology that Children are not children. So, yeah.